In this episode, I am joined by Hayley Shetlane. Together, we discuss her doctoral work on vitamins and metabolic syndrome, her experience setting up new methods, and the many analogies between science and life. This episode concludes Season 2 of The Metabolomist on the collaboration with the early career members of MANA, the Metabolomics Association of North America. To kick off the episode, I discuss with the Chair and Vice-Chair of MANA ECM what it's like to be an early career scientist in the field of metabolomics today. We talk mentorship, career, community building, and more. In the second part of the episode, Hayley Shetlane also has a great take on what sets early career scientists apart in the field of metabolomics. So don't miss out on that interview. But for now, let's listen to Arpana Vanilla and Nicole Prince tell us more about MANA ECM. Welcome back to The Metabolomist, the podcast where we listen to the stories whispered by metabolomic data. I am Alice Limonciel, and this season we dive into the application of metabolomics in the clinics and the place of data interpretation in this field. Welcome to this new episode of The Metabolomist. Today it's a very special episode where we're going to interview a member of MANA ECM. I start the episode with Nicole and Arpana. Would you like to first introduce yourselves and tell us who you are, what you do at MANA, and also what your work with metabolomics is like? Great. Thank you for having us on your podcast. We're very excited. My name is Arpana Vanilla, and I'm the chair of ECM and have been the chair for two years now, which has been really exciting. Normally, my role is to push MANA ECM activities and make connections with young and early career scientists. MANA ECM Early Career Members is an interest group of Metabolomics Association of North America, also known as MANA, and our mission is to empower the next generation of scientists in the field of metabolomics in North America by supporting opportunities for mentorship, networking, training, and career development opportunities. In the world of metabolomics, I am an academic coordinator at the UC Davis West Coast Metabolomics Center, where I am promoting education of metabolomics. So I'm teaching others on how to learn about metabolomics, what to do with their data, how to process their data, how to do compound identification. That's my niche. I started in metabolomics in developing mass spectral libraries, and I still have a hand in that. But primarily working with food and natural products is where my interests lie. So that's a little bit about myself. Thank you. What about you, Nicole? Hi, I'm Nicole Prince. I'm currently a postdoc fellow at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Med School. I've, I'm also the vice chair of Lana ECM, so I've been working closely with Arpana for the, for the last year, which has been a great opportunity. I love working with early career researchers and love developing some of the resources we have for Lana ECM. Um, as far as my research, I primarily focus on metabolomics that are associated with early life immune development and early life infections. And I work in the space of metabolomic epidemiology. Great, thank you. And maybe before we go deeper into what MANA ECM does, should we define what an early career researcher is? That's a great question. So for us at MANA, it's anyone within 10 years of their last degree. So we're trying to capture assistant professors who haven't received their tenure yet or folks in industry 
we have a little bit more wiggle room um, to capture those early career scientists. Okay. And so what kind of guidance do you provide with the ECM part of MANA? I think a lot of our activities with MANA ECM center around career development and providing networking opportunities that are virtual because obviously it's more accessible, especially for our early career type researchers. So we offer a lot of activities like virtual job fairs, advice on how to construct your CV or resume. We recently had a workshop on that. We also have activities centered around different areas of career development, like getting advice from panelists who are across academia, industry, and government jobs. So we try to promote our members, give them a network to work with of other early career researchers, and also provide them resources for their career. Awesome. Thank you. I heard that one of the things you advocate is to have multiple mentors, both inside and outside of metabolomics. What's the reason for that? Because having a mentor is a, is a relatively common thing, but why multiple mentors? I think personally, it kind of aligns with some parts of our mission, which are, again, just to establish a networking community when you're an early career researcher. So you're exactly right. You're almost always going to have a direct mentor that you might report to that's advising you on different aspects of research. Um, and I think through when we start building these networks as early career researchers, we're organically sometimes going to come across people who might not align 100% with our research goal in that moment, but they might have another tool or set of expertise or skills that can add a different perspective. I think that it's really beneficial because you get some outside perspective on your research. And you can also have another example of what it's like to run a lab, the different options that you can take when you're looking for establishing collaborations and networking opportunities. I think that it's nice to have several different people that are senior to you that you can work very close with in that way. Absolutely. And it can give you ideas about what else you could do apart from having your own lab. Because of course, when you do your PhD or your, your early postdoc, you kind of dream of having your own lab for some of us, but there are also very interesting careers outside of this. Meeting people who have made different choices can really help you to figure that out. How do you find those mentors and how do you sustain these relationships with the mentors that you've had in your early days of your career? Any advice on this? Yeah, I think it's putting yourself out there, like finding those events that we put on, whether it's virtual or in person, and just starting up a conversation, though that might sound stressful and can be intimidating. At the end of the day, we're all looking for some kind of connection. And it could be simple as like, where is the coffee table if you're standing next to the coffee if you're at a conference? This is something that we learned early in one of our workshops uh, seminars, is like if you're hanging around the coffee tables near a conference, that's a great way to network, right? So mm -hmm. I think it's chatting with people and getting to know them, establishing what are their strengths that you could benefit from, essentially, uh, and vice versa, because a mentorship relationship is goes two ways. Like, what can you provide them? Maybe it's helping them make connections with other early career scientists because they need postdocs or things of that nature. But it's, you know, keeping in touch after the fact putting in some time, following up, you know, if you have a question and just putting in the time. I think it's just like any other relationship that we would have in or outside of science. I was going to say, it's, it's like friendship. You have to, to nurture the, those relationships and give them 
the time to that they deserve as well. Oh, definitely. Like getting close to each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's that fundamental level of like trust and that come with building a relationship. I like the point that you made that also as an early career scientist, you also bring something just because you don't have as much experience. You have different perspectives. You have maybe knowledge of different tools that maybe more experienced people don't have. And just from your own personality, that might be different from that of someone who's older or is just a different person. You can really find compatibilities like this that don't only have to do with someone giving their experience to someone else, but it goes both ways as well, I think. Yeah. And within that 10-year, that range, we have early, early career. We have like mid-career that we know a little bit of people. And then we have more senior level. And then we have definitely the senior scientists and researchers. We all know people and we just have to lean into our network and make connections happen. There's always a PI that says like, hey, Arpana, do you know an early career scientist that knows X, Y, and Z? Thinking in my intern yeah. Rolodex and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you chase them down at a conference and you make that happen. I think in your in your seminars or in your activities at ICM, you also advise early career scientists on imposter syndrome and other things that happen, especially in the field like metabolomics, where you we combine so many different specialties that it can be easy to feel like we don't really understand everything. So what kind of advice do you do you work with for imposter syndrome and other issues that people might have in the beginning of their careers? Yeah, I think that's such an important concept, especially at the early career stage where a lot of our MANA ACM members, I would say we're primarily consist of graduate students and also postdocs, even though we welcome anyone within 10 years of their terminal degree, our primary members that are attending some of these events are more likely to be in graduate school or uh, soon within just the first couple of years following that period. And I think it's really difficult because you may have gained a lot of expertise and I don't think we should undersell ourselves and just feel like I only know one area because I've only gotten a degree in X or Y or Z field that contributes to metabolomics. Um, But it can be quite intimidating because you might go to a conference and see some of these senior researchers who seem to know all the biochemistry, all the analytical chemistry, all of the medical knowledge, and it seems overwhelming. I think one of the main ways to combat that is just knowing that that's very normal at this stage and it's okay to always be learning. Um, And I think what kind of balances that out is making these connections. Let's say you have training in one area and you're struggling with maybe interpreting the underlying biology of some relationship you found. Leaning on your peers or your mentor or other collaborators that you may have worked with, I think is really going to help you not feel all of the weight and all of the pressure that you have to understand intimately every single component that goes with problem. Yeah, it's really interesting. Also, like as you were answering the question, it reminded me of my own experience. I did my PhD and then I was an early postdoc. And then at some point, I, I was working in the field of in vitro toxicology. And then at some point, I turned around and then I realized I'm an expert at this. I really know the field. And it's really interesting because it's a very gradual process. Like every day, every month, every year, you learn so much about science and about your field of expertise. And I don't know if you both had this, but for me, there was an aha moment when I realized, oh no, I actually know a lot. 
And this is really, really empowering as well, because you have this revelation for no specific reason. And then you realize, okay, no, I, I can do this. But th I think it's nice to have a, a network or a group of people that also support you before you have this revelation to tell you that, yeah, even if you have uncertainties, it's normal and we all have them and you will always have them also, but it's okay and you will always keep learning. And this is what keeps this interesting, actually. Absolutely. And I definitely think you bring up a really interesting point that I can definitely relate to as well, which is we're always trained to think of what questions do I need to ask? What more do I need to learn about this, you know, data set, this problem or whatever, but just taking stock of, oh, yeah, I actually have gained a lot of experience and I have learned a lot about that. And you're always going to have more to learn, but don't let that outweigh what you already know and Absolutely. what you can already contribute. I want to add a little bit to that. Um, and I think we have to remind ourselves that skills doesn't necessarily mean like knowing all the reactions or knowing like how to run an instrument. Of course, that's definitely helps, right, in being a scientist. But it's also the soft skills, like knowing how to give a presentation really well that you can speak to a lot of people in the audience, not just the scientists in the room. And mm -hmm. it's about being able to have those soft skills as well um, that eases into thinking, okay, well, maybe like the imposter syndrome is is not real, right? Because at the end of the day, it's not real. Like you have so many skills that, um, like, like Nicole was saying, that you can lean into and it's, it's more than just behind the bench or at the instrument. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you're at a spot in your research in metabolomics where you feel you need the expertise of someone in a field where you're not an expert, do you have any strategies for this, how to find them, especially when you're an early career researcher? So how to reach out to people who are experts in other parts of metabolomics field? Reaching out to people in your community, in your network, right? If I know I'm lacking in certain information, maybe I could reach out to Nicole because she has more expertise in um, other fields of metabolomics. So it's it's just knowing and being attentive to people's expertises nowadays with Slack and email and all forms of connection. It's really quick to get a hold of a hold of people. LinkedIn. That's kind of how we've established connections. Mm -hmm. um, you can see people's profiles and expertise, and you can say, oh, you know, like. Do, do you know anybody that knows this thing or that I'm stuck on this thing or it's just just, just asking? Yeah. And this is something I, I really learned also. I mean, I, I knew this from speaking with people at conferences or people I collaborated with. But since I, I use LinkedIn more in the last couple of years, I, I noticed also whenever you ask something to someone or someone asks something to you, you usually try to help. And this is just a, a natural human reaction. So if if you're looking for support or help and you, you find someone you think is a good fit, usually they will not shut you down. And if they can't help you, they will usually point you to someone else they think can help you. And this is really the great thing we have now with the internet is that we can do that and we can do that really quickly. And it's amazing. Yeah. yeah maybe knowing the main players in the field, in, in any field, right? So that way you kind of have established like, okay, well, this person knows lipidomics, and maybe they have a really good network of folks in lipidomics or this person is really good in clinical metabolomics, X, Y, and Z. Having a good um, 
you know, reference in your mind of who to go to, but also folks who are just really social, right? Like if you know someone who has a really good network, they might know of someone that can help you out yeah. later down the road and establish those connections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And if we think of uh, early career researchers who are more moving towards independence and establishing their own group, what kind of advice would you have for, for this stage in their career? Also, when you want to write grants to find funding, do you have any special types of supports at Mana ACM for, for these stages of people's career? I think as far as the kind of the first portion of that, so the transition from working directly under somebody as either a graduate student or a postdoc researcher, moving into a phase where you are maybe now coming up with the direction of the projects and taking on some of these other responsibilities that sometimes we're not explicitly trained to do, like managing a team or managing grants that can be a little bit intimidating. I think that we do offer workshops on some of those topics, especially by inviting panelists. That's one of the reasons sometimes we'll have, um, like we had a transitioning webinar in February talking about how do you go from your postdoc into a government industry or academic job? So we do like to invite outside speakers because obviously a lot of us on the council are currently also thinking about those problems. And I think yeah. that early career organizations can really shine in these ways because there's always an opportunity if you're a member either of MANA ECM or even another organization that has an early career interest group. Um, talking to the council and saying, hey, you know, I'm thinking about this problem. Do you have any advice? Or they, we really like to hear from our members and know what they want to learn about and what they want advice on. Um, and then as far as the second portion, I think the funding can sometimes almost be more daunting because how do we go out and get funding for ourselves for the first time? That can be like such a big event. And I know here in a lot of our members in MANA ECM are based in the U.S. So a lot of that funding is going to go through a couple um, agencies. And we haven't yet started any workshops to support some of those areas. But I definitely think that we can point people towards resources and databases where they can find access. And maybe that's something if our members are interested in that we can incorporate into the future. Yeah. Great. That makes me wonder also, are these some of the reasons that made you join MANA ACM or what, what was the reason for you to get into? Because this is a lot of extra work for you, I guess, doing this. So why did you get into this and what do you see as the main value of building community as well? Oh, I could. That's such a good question. And when I was reading all the questions, I was thinking about this one specifically, like why I joined MANA and MANA ECM to begin with. Because Oliver Fiend was one of the first persons to start it with Mark uh, Sosinski and a lot of other uh, thought leaders in the, in the community. So I was right there when it started and I felt really proud to like be part of that. And I think personally for me is when I was just coming out of my PhD and, um, and, and the mono was kind of forming at the same time, I needed that sense of community and it was right there in front of me starting. So it was the perfect opportunity. Um, and, you know, the importance of community building for my for myself is making social connections, building a support team outside of lab or, you know, outside of my office and just growing as a person. 
and, you know, being able to network and um, with all of those things comes innovation and creativity for me. Um, I get really excited when I get to go to conferences and network with people and it just really stirs up those creativity, you know, juices and ideas. So for me, that's why I started is like looking for a community and it was right there in front of me. So I took the opportunity and said, hey, let's see where this takes me. And it's given me 10 times more. So yeah, because it's a it's a very human experience, isn't it? Like share so much with people. Um, Nicole, what was the reason for you to join Mana, Mana ICM and Mana in general? I think I share a lot of the same sentiments as Arpana. I wasn't there when it started. I just joined the Early Career Council in the past year, but I think I immediately felt a sense of community. And I think that establishing peer-to-peer connections is really important um, because you can see and meet all of these people in diverse areas of metabolomics. And it really does help boost your creativity and give you another area to think about when you're doing your own projects. I think you just naturally learn things that I might not just come across from reading literature where I'm maybe thinking of a specific problem. So it's just been a great resource. I think I've met so many people in the field and it's allowed me to reach out and expand kind of my research horizons. What do you think are the main qualities that it requires to do this kind of work in your opinion? That's a good question. I think it's a genuine interest. Like you really want it to to, um, succeed, right? We're a very small community at the moment, two, three hundred people. But it's it's small. Like when we go to our conferences, it's intimate, right? Uh, it has its advantages. Yeah, yeah. You get to talk to almost everybody if you wanted to. So I think that's just it has to be like genuine interest in the success of Mana as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, making sure it it continues beyond our our. Uh, also, yeah, 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 of course, because when you have a community like this, it's not just for the people who are at, at the top, not really at the top, but who are kind of leading it in the moment. You also want it's a bit like a family. You want it to go on and grow and, and not stop after you move on to something else. Do you agree, Nicole, or you want to add something? Is there another essential skill that you can think of that should really be at the top as well? Yeah, I completely agree. I think as long as you feel personally passionate and motivated about the activities and types of things that Mata ECM is doing, then being in something like a council position is very rewarding. And obviously, everybody has different areas. You could definitely, some people are going to feel drawn to different type of scientific citizenship projects. Um, so I think as long as you are feeling moved to make that change happen, that's really the most important quality because I think otherwise it it can be a lot of work. And I think that part, um, could be almost like a little bit tiring if you don't have that drive and that connection to the community. Um, you'll probably find it elsewhere. Not everybody's going to be, want to do exactly the same activities, but I would say that's the main thing for me, just feeling the reward come back after, for example, we maybe offer an event and I see feedback that people liked it. That feels really, really nice. Mm-hmm. Speaking of events, this would be my last question. So where, where will we find Mana ICM in the next week? So now it's October 2023. 
what's happening in the coming days and weeks? We will actually be at the fifth annual MANA conference, um, which will be during October 23rd through the 27th at University of Missouri, Columbia in Missouri. And if you wanted to find out more information on how to attend the conference, you could go to mana2023.net. I think even just Googling, you know, MANA fifth annual conference will land you in our pages. And you could find us, MANA ECM, at, at that conference. We'll be having heaps of networking events, ways to promote um, social connections and allowing people to meet senior scientists. And it's just some of the things that we're planning on doing. So uh, looking forward to meeting the people that are coming, but hopefully there will be more folks coming to the conference. Thanks. And for anyone who's been listening and would like to join Manaecium, where do they find more information about that? You can always reach out to us via email. Our email address is earlycareer at metabolomicsna. And then you can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is just at mana, M-A-N-A-E-C-M. So at M-A-N-A-E-C-M. We are pretty good about advertising. That's one of our main ways to advertise is through our Twitter. You can always send us the message or send us an email if you're interested in joining. And we'll actually also have a couple of council positions that are coming available towards the end of October. So if you're interested in joining us either as a member, that's great. If you're interested in a more responsibility on the council, we're also happy to uh, give you more information on that through those avenues. Great. Thank you. So thank you both for discussing with me as an introduction to this episode. And I think now it's time to listen to the discussion with the winner of our competition for uh, being the guest on this episode. I really look forward to this interview. Thank you so much for talking with me and all the best for ACM and the future. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Welcome to this new episode of The Metabolomist. Today, I'm joined by Haley Chatlane. Welcome, Haley, and congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on. I'm, I'm very grateful you're here as well. You're a postdoc at NCAT, which is a, a part of the NIA. Can you maybe begin by explaining what your current research focus is? I think we'll discuss in, with a paper something that you did in your PhD. But tell us a bit more about what you do right now, and then we'll get more into the, the previous work as we as we discuss it with the paper. Yeah, so right now I'm a postdoc at NCAT, so that stands for the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. It's part of the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S. And my particular flavor of research right now is sort of springboarding off of what I did in my PhD. So my PhD is in nutrition, but I focused on metabolomics. So I wanted to focus on developing my expertise in the tool itself in the context of nutrition. And now at NCAT, no more nutrition. Now I focus, most of my projects are about COVID, but also I'm on projects for pipeline development for both data analysis and acquisition. And I have other projects related more to like quality assurance and quality control in metabolomics. Jack of all trades a little bit <laughs> when it comes to, oh, I really didn't yeah. end my skills as a metabolomist, as you say. 
Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like your expertise is both on the analytical aspect and the bioinformatics. Is that right? Or where would you position yourself? Because metabolomics is like a huge spectrum of expertises. Yeah, it's funny. I do triathlons as a hobby. And so with a triathlon, you're not professional or like, uh, you're not the best at any one sport, swimming, biking, or running, but you get to string them all together. And so I say metabolomics is kind of like a triathlon where you're stringing together analytical chemistry, informatics, and biochemical interpretation. I would say that I'm kind of a triathlete when it comes to metabolomics as well. So not quite leaning into any particular sport heavier than another. Yeah, but that's great because then you understand the the difficulties and the needs of each side that is needed for metabolomics. So it's, it's a great profile. It has its challenges as an early career scientist. Sure, yeah. Because you, you must have had a lot to learn. What, what was your background originally from the very beginning before you got into metabolomics? Uh, chemistry. So I majored in chemistry, okay. minored in nutrition in undergrad. I was one class away from a double major, but I didn't want to take medical nutrition therapy. I think it's kind of challenging. And I wonder if other early career scientists in metabolomics have this challenge too, where finding a niche for yourself is, is kind of tricky. At, at some point, you do need to focus on something. You can't always bill yourself as a triathlete or whatever. So mm -hmm. that pros and cons, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, but I guess the so the metabolomics aspect is what has brought you from your PhD work to you do now and pro probably also what you will do in the future. But this multiplicity of skills is actually something you can transport to lots of different um, settings. And we will talk about the applicability of metabolomics to different uh, types of disease. So there's potentially a lot you can do with what you know now. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so because this is a special episode about the early career members of MANA, I wanted to ask you one question about this. It, what do you think from your perspective sets an early career scientist apart in this? I think, yeah, one thing that's exciting about being young in a younger field, like metabolomics is a pretty young field, Yeah, is we're seeing our mentors be innovators. So we kind of get this unique perspective as scientists where a lot of things that we see in other fields like they've been set in stone like western blot been around forever or like it's like certain techniques have been around forever you watch your mentors do it they have their flavor of doing it and then we repeat that counts for credibility but also it, it begs the question of how can we get creative and we as young scientists get to watch our mentors be creative and we get to carry that forward like it's really cool to be able to be in a position to see how the standing on the shoulders of giant is sort of being acted out and really rapidly in real time i think that's something unique that we have and it's also something that we get to carry forward to the next students who we mentor that's a great answer thank you mm -hmm. yeah it really fits with the field you're right um, and do you remember, like maybe it's not so long ago for me, but do you remember when you first got acquainted with metabolomics, um, what was the appeal for you and what was your first picture of it? Oh, man. I think we might need to take a big step back for me to tell this story. I'll try to be deep because I'll go back to when I started undergrad. 
I started undergrad wanting to study linguistics. I think language is amazing. I love study. I love patterns and I love the way it connects humans um, and the way it evolves. And so then I went to a small liberal arts college that did not have a linguistics major. <laughs> I had to figure something else out. And I was taking chemistry to be pre-medicine. And I inadvertently fell in love with chemistry, was not expecting that. But I realized actually that chemistry is a language in itself. So we have functional groups that act kind of like parts of speech. We have different chemical reactions that behave a lot like grammar, but also it doesn't always follow a linear path, which is also a lot like the way that language evolved and it connects people. Um, and the people, I think there are, are many more people who see the way that language, like spoken language connects people as a little easier to see in day-to-day -day life. But then there's something kind of romantic, I think, about seeing how the chemicals that we consume, that we are exposed to, and that we process within our bodies make ourselves. And so mm -hmm. I fell in love with chemistry, and then I wanted to find a way to apply yeah. chemistry. Yeah. Once I realized that I love chemistry, I wanted to find a way to apply it to people because I love philosophy, I love theology, I love sociology, all of that stuff. And so that's where nutrition and food came into play for me. So then I applied to do a PhD program, first in food science, but then um, I found my PhD advisor, Rachel Kopeck, who was in the nutrition department, and I'm really intrigued by her research. So I switched to a PhD in nutrition. But what was really motivating me about my PhD projects was to do metabolomics because I saw metabolomics as this opportunity to translate the way that I saw chemistry as a language into a discipline itself. I see the omics and particularly like metabolomics as like another sort of inflection point of the scientific revolution where we started out with having unknown phenomena and we created stories about them like mythologies or legends or whatever a dog and then the like 1300 like francis bacon rolls around like no let's start telling these stories based on questions that we ask and things that we do to test and a lot of those testing were an adversarial concept where it's like i say it's this you say it's that you test whoever wins is right and we've come to learn that that's not always the case sometimes there are other ideas out there mm -hmm. and so now we have these opportunities to take big data and see like what story is the data telling us and what can we all like collectively come together to try to interpret from this story mm -hmm. and i yeah. think the vietzio mix mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and it's just so cool to be to be young and be part of it mm -hmm. absolutely i like this a lot and so i would always say when growing up you know how people say like you are what you eat yeah and i never understood that phrase until I started doing metabolomics, and I was like, oh my gosh, we literally are what we yeah. eat. And this mm -hmm. is the study of that. And so when it came to nutrition, I was just really swept away by the intimacy of like our relationship with food, how it becomes us, how we process it, and being able to, as you say, tell the story of how what we eat becomes us and how that's different for different people and how there's kind of this breadth and scope 
of untargeted metabolomics where you're taking all of this data from all of these people, hopefully. Sometimes you don't get that that fortunate and being to have a lot of subjects. Um, and then you're able to take all of that and eventually filter it down to how it's unique to each person. And I think that that is, like, I could wax philosophical about it all day because <laughs> I also, and just so, I think humanity has this whole thing of the universal and the individual. And metabolomics is just this beautiful microcosm of that. Yeah, well, it sounds also like metabolomics is then in the kind of your dictionary where you, you get all the words that constitute a person and then you get to tell the story of that person. Exactly. And that's how I put it in my dissertation presentation, actually. I, huh, when I was explaining what metabolomics is, I was like, it's like it's a book, but we get all of the words jumbled up. So first we need to find out what the words are and then we need to put them together in the story. Yeah. And then we can start to figure out with other people what that story means. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, I have beautiful. I love that. Yeah. I've been enamored with metabolomics for a very long time. Do you remember a special step that was a little bit hard for you to take where you really had to work? Yeah, I do. I, that just transported me back. We had this little like cave of a room for our QTA. It was in the biomedical research tower at Ohio mm -hmm. State. And it was just this teeny little room with the cute, it was just a cute top and a hood and a desk, like the, maybe like six feet by four feet or something. Um, and, yeah, no space for this track. All you could do, you could just hear the cute top, like the turbo was whirring in the back and so many days of just staring at the manual of that cute top. Cause so I was, I was the first student in Rachel's lab which I did intentionally because both I was really interested in her research and I wanted the experience of seeing what it's like to start a new lab. Um, but that came with kind of needing, I won't say that I needed to teach myself how to use the QTOP because I got a lot of help from Rachel and from like Dan Cuthbertson and all the customer support at Agilent. They were huge. But it was a lot of like, lots and lots of troubleshooting, lots and lots of trial and error. And that was really hard. I think that was probably, does it make it easier? Um, if you have a new instrument now, do you now know better how to go quickly through it or it's always difficult no matter which instrument it is? Well, it was kind of funny because I came into my postdoc, same situation, we got a new mass back and I was like, I got this. Like I've done it once before, I can do it now. And it was like a different brand, completely different software, really hard to use. And um, yeah, that was hard. But if I, I think if I belly up to another ad like Q top, I think I got that. Maybe it's linked to that. But is there something you wish you had known when you started out with Metabolomics? This is a question I always ask. It's not special for you, yeah? But is there something yeah. you wish you had known that maybe now you would be better prepared? I think this is actually just kind of something I struggle with in general because I love looking at big picture ideas. I love metabolomics on a big picture scale, but it is a very detail-oriented discipline. Um, yeah. And so I think, um, and this is something that I'm continuing to grow in, but like really training myself especially in the analytical chemistry aspect like 
you've got to be dialed in and focusing on what you're doing, what potential errors you can make, and then how you can avoid those. Um, yeah, I think if I had known, I think I would have learned things a lot faster if I had known that being that detail oriented was part of yeah. the part but of the rest. It's also, especially if you're in charge of a whole project, like you have to balance both of it. You have to reconcile both the detailed and the, the overview because otherwise you have the opposite issue that you might get so much into the detail that you start drifting off entirely and spend weeks doing something that actually has nothing to do with what you're trying to do in the first place. So there's a balance there to find and to know when you can start diving into the detail once you've probably made your map of where you have to go. But it's a it's a very good point, yeah. Makes sense. One thing you mentioned to me when we when we discussed before the episode to prepare is that, that NCATS is the only part of NIH that doesn't have the name of a disease in its name. Yeah. I think well one of two. I think there's um and um and I found this really Okay. So one of very few. And I found this really interesting because in your work, as you mentioned already, you use metabolomics for multiple diseases. And I guess some of your colleagues use it for even more uh, diseases that, that, than the two that you mentioned. Is there something about that technique that makes it particularly applicable to multiple types of diseases? Um, what's your perspective on this? Because of course, like the, the methodology itself is not better suited to this or that disease. So I think it makes sense to focus on the method and then apply broadly. But uh, what's your perspective on this? Yeah, I think that that's where metabolomics seems to be going in the biomedical space, especially is using the same tool in the context of different diseases, particularly rare diseases are a really big opportunity, I think, for metabolomics to be applied. I think a few folks on your show have talked about that as well. Um, and because metabolomics is a tool for precision and individualized medicine is really growing and it's really exciting. My work, like even in my PhD dissertation, was three different, I can't say disease states because the last one wasn't disease, but like, yeah, yeah, I guess three different disease states, one being healthy. And then now my work yeah. is on COVID and then we've got other folks who've done, like we, we can see metabolomics represented in such a variety of diseases, which I think is a testament to the importance of the tool. But it also should come with a word of caution in that it's not exactly something to be applied willy-nilly. I think you've also had folks like Jennifer Kerwin and other folks from like MQAC um, who are really advocating for the importance of quality assurance and quality control in analysis, but also in biosample co collection and biobanking. And this is where I think it's really important because if we're going to apply metabolomics to a number of diseases, that requires that we have a really strong community, both in terms of people who have biological expertise or clinical expertise in these diseases themselves, but also people who have expertise in the analytical chemistry and the data collection, training nurses, training other techs and folks who are collecting the samples, because we're already dealing with massive matrices. We're already having so many variables that we need to account for just in terms of the features. We don't want to also have to account for different tube lots or different handling procedures. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think metabolomics will grow, but mm -hmm. 
Um, and that's actually something unique about being another early career member is I think all of us are starting to be more, more and more exposed to that importance. And so how do we cultivate a community around collecting data in the most reproducible and efficient way possible? Yeah. Absolutely, because these notions are becoming kind of common knowledge at the moment, even though we should never stop talking about it. But I guess 10 years ago, this was not so obvious to people. And there are many studies that suffered from this and people who had to redo a lot of things or lost a whole study because there was a variable they hadn't accounted for and that had completely messed up their, their experiment. Going back to the, the use of metabolomics for specific diseases, like you've now worked with, so metabolic syndrome, I will talk about uh, for, from the paper. COVID and other diseases, like, do you see commonalities between these diseases through metabolomics? Are there things that metabolomics tells us about different diseases that maybe also only metabolomics can tell us about? Yeah, this is interesting. And actually, I'm going to give a shout out to a recent review that it was accepted, and I think it will be published soon. So this was led by Dr. Virtue Darst um, from Fred Hutch as part of the Comet's Early Career Working Group. So COMETS is the Consortium of Metabolomic Studies. No, I think Rachel Kelly talked about it last when she was on. Mm -hmm. um, so our early career group, I'm, I'm co-chair of that. But Virtue and her postdoc, Harriet Fuller, um, really spearheaded this effort for highlighting how metabolomics has been used in epidemiology. And as part of that, it was actually my task to make a figure where we compiled data from all of the, the co-authors looked up different chronic diseases or different diseases like cancer, cardiovascular disease, COVID, kidney disease. There are quite a few included, and we created this upset plot of shared metabolite and shared metabolite classes. So I would point people to that paper to both get a concept of metabolomic epidemiology and also look at this upset plot. <laughs> but something that seems to be coming out frequently, I mean, we are in a bit of a time where inflammation is such a buzzword for all diseases. So tryptophan and the kynurenine pathway does seem to be coming out a lot. And phospholipids are easy to detect and abundant. So phospholipids, mm -hmm. single myelin, seem to be coming out in a lot of different disease states. Yeah. Yeah. How about you have inflammation in common? Of course. And um, is there anything specific use you mentioned rare diseases like um is there any work that can be done combining more prevalent diseases and rare diseases together with metabolomics to get something out of this is this something you've ever tried because i know you work a bit on rare diseases is that uh, an avenue for you that would be interesting i actually haven't thought of that but it also i'm going to give another plug for comet for the comets analytics that could be a really interesting application for that. So Comets Analytics is a freely available tool. You can either use an R package or a website GUI um, to take large cohort studies and either perform a single cohort analysis. So you can run a variety of different regression models on it, or you can do meta-analyses. So it would be interesting to see if we can take some more prevalent diseases and compare them, compare especially we compare more prevalent disease with a rare disease, see what's in common. And that could also be useful for drug repurposing, which is something else that NCATS does. All of that with the caveat, especially like, again, like you need to have your epidemiologist on board who can evaluate your cohort and whether they actually be directly or indirectly. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but it's a, it's an interesting use of the comments analytics. So for anyone who's interested in this tool, you should go to the the episode with Rachel Kelly because we discussed comments and and comments analytics in detail there. To complete a bit our discussion about metabolomics in general, before we go to the paper, um, have you worked with other omics? And, and do you have any preferences in working with metabolomics alone or in combination with other omics? Or what's your perspective on this? I have not worked with any other omics. I have been very focused on the metabolomics aspect of things. I like the analytical chemistry small molecule aspect. I think the identification sure. component of metabolomics is hard, but fun. <laughs> I've just stuck to um, metabolomics for now. Yeah, that's fine. Of course. The paper we'll discuss, this is the one you submitted in your, in your application to be a guest today. You're the first author. It's from 2021 and it's titled Vitamin A and D Absorption in Adults with Metabolic Syndrome versus Healthy Controls a pilot study utilizing targeted and untargeted LCMS lipidomics. So it's pretty clear what's going on here. We mostly look at lipids in this paper, even though we've been talking about metabolomics the whole time, but in this specific case, we only look at lipids. Do you want to tell us a bit about the background for this study? You were looking at vitamins A and D. What did you want to find out? And what did you actually find out? Well, like, What are the main findings of the paper? Yeah, so this study was based on a parent study from our co-author Richard Bruno's lab at Ohio State. They had done a study where they had patients with metabolic syndrome and healthy controls come in and consume a vitamin E supplement, uh, a large dose of vitamin E, and like compare the absorption rates between metabolic syndrome and healthy, where they found that metabolic syndrome patients didn't absorb as much vitamin E. But vitamin E shares transporters than vitamins D and K. We're not totally sure about vitamin A, what transporters are, are used for the absorption of that. Based on that work, there was plasma left over. So we had the question of, do these absorption kinetics for vitamin E also translate to vitamins A and D? And can that influence the recommendations that we make for micronutrients for patients with metabolic syndrome. And so we looked at the data. We first started with a targeted platform where we just looked at the amounts of vitamins A and D. And we found something we weren't expecting where we were expecting the levels to be lower in patients with metabolic syndrome for both vitamins. But what we actually found is vitamin A was higher than vitamin D was not significantly different. And so that was kind of staggering for us. And then what we wanted to do was also pair this with an untargeted method, an untargeted lipidomics method, to see what lipids also follow that trajectory and what story can they tell us about lipid digestion, particularly through these two fat-soluble vitamins. And we found a few sphingomyelins and choline, other choline phospholipids, phosphatidylcholines, et cetera, that were associated with metabolic syndrome compared to the healthy controls. And from those, we dug into the literature and started to generate hypotheses about why we observed the phenomenon we did. And you've yeah. already mentioned standardization in metabolomics, but I guess in this study particularly, you had to combine two kind of different measurements. So this, that, was that your first encounter with the problem of standardization or 
were you already used to it and you went straight into that from the beginning? Yeah, so this is my first study ever. Like, this is my first oh, yeah, yeah. study. Um, so yeah, you had, a, I think, <laughs> we talked a little bit about, like, what were some of the challenges of this study in our re-interview. There were many. Um, <laughs> it really highlighted the importance of experiment preparation for me. <laughs> Pre-labeling vials setting out your randomization scheme beforehand and using internal standards for targeted studies. And yeah, learned a lot of that. Yeah, this reminds me of the discussion I had with Julie Curot last year. She talked about all the issues she had in her first study as well. It was, it's a beautiful episode for anyone who's interested in this. I really recommend the one with Julie Curot because she really goes shamelessly into all the details. It's it's one, it's, I think it's really helpful and it's really a great, a great uh, episode for that. I guess this also like builds your appetite for standardization because you knew how important it would be once you have to analyze your results. It's so funny that you say that because when I joined MQAC, that's exactly the reason why I applied to join <laughs> because I've gone through this work plan and I don't want other people to have to learn yeah, it is a blessing. That's how these things happen, of course. <laughs> when you explain the paper, you, you explain beautifully the storyline that is also in the paper. And I, I always ask this question as well. Did you set out to approach the question like this, to have these different steps? Or did you go step by step and then devise the next experiment or the next questions you were going to answer based on what, what came? I guess since you had a, a surprising answer to the first question, you didn't go in a straight line here. Yeah, so we did intend to do the targeted, untargeted combination. That was set from the get-go. The statistics was not. And so, like, I think, and this is a thing, maybe actually with all science studies, where you go into it with a plan of what statistics you'll do. And then certain things happen, or you realize different assumptions, and then you kind of have to be flexible and, and figure out what's most appropriate. That was another big learning curve for me. This was my first time doing um, regression analyses. Because when you're first learning metabolomics, you learn like PCA, PLSDA. This is how we tell the difference between groups. Kapow, you're done. But obviously it gets more. There are other opportunities <laughs> for analytical methods that you can use and statistical methods and I learned a lot and actually regressions kind of have become like my bread and butter metabolomics analyses now rather than multivariate approaches. Mm -hmm. So Interesting. Yeah. We have two figures and, and a couple of tables here. In figure one, we see over time the, the, the levels of those two vitamins that you looked at with the targeted approach, vitamin A, vitamin D. And they ask I found interesting was that this is postprandial measurements. So what was your take here? What, what did you learn from the, the impact of fasting status here? For this study, fasting status was really important because of the differences that we already know exist in triglyceride levels and um, metabolic syndrome versus healthy patients. So fasting was really important for us. And so all patients came in fasted for this study. But what was really interesting was looking at figure one is seeing the trajectory over time. So even though hour zero is our is our baseline, what we're seeing is like this difference, especially between our highest responders, because what we did was we plotted 
the mean, but also our highest and lowest responders for this for this figure. And so you can see there's substantial inter-individual variability. And there's probably even substantial inter-individual variability in the fasting state. But at least you have that as a baseline. And I think that's a kind of the case with a lot of studies where you just do your best and then at least you're controlling for what you know you control. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What I really liked about this paper, this is one of the things that made me choose uh, this paper, actually, um, is the second figure where you draw your environment, uh, the cells that you're looking at or the cells that you're that are doing the work you're looking at, let's say. And the different mechanisms that you're hypothesizing may or may not be happening in the system. So for the absorption of these vitamins, um, can you tell us about why you came to draw this like that? Because some people just stay with the tabular result and say, look, this is up, this is down. This means this and this, and then can write a discussion of three pages or not and leave it at that. And I really like papers where we have a visual way of summarizing what's going on. I mean, now it's more common with graphical abstracts but not everyone does it still. And I, I like this figure for this because you could follow the different hypotheses and then and then see what each part of the results may or may not be revealing about what's happening. Yeah, thank you so much because I love this. So we're in the reason for this. Sorry. Yeah, go. Thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciate the compliment because I spent a lot of time on this figure and um, it's actually funny. I was actually, I was sitting in a bar waiting for my friend while working on this part of my this chapter and I was like I wish I had a way that I could show all of this happening and I like sketched it down in a notebook while I was waiting after this paper I was like I want this to be my thing I want every paper that I write with metabolomics to have a cartoon and sometimes it's just too hard <laughs> like the very negative doesn't have anything like this but I thought what was helpful for this particular figure is it's we're focused on the interaction of these fat-soluble vitamins and lipid with um, digestion and absorption. So everything is at the intestinal lumen. All of our hypotheses are in that concerted space or that concentrated space, which makes it easier to draw a figure than if it's something happening in like plasma. I thought it was helpful for me to visualize this too, um, both in terms of bringing together all of the literature that I was reading, because I was reading about enzymes for lipid digestion and then absorption are they shared among lipids and vitamin a or d and then other papers about vitamin d and e absorption and then also is there a retinol transporter at all and then also the chylomicron packaging and basolateral excretion and all that so i was like i need to get this straight for myself and if i get it straight for myself then maybe it'll also be helpful for other people that's how this makes exactly. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know, for me, it also really helps me to place the ideas and to realize what is really bringing something and what is just like little details that don't tie up with the rest. And maybe these ones we leave for the we manage to understand really what's going on here. So it also helps, for me, it helps me to organize my thoughts. And then exactly as you said once you have this beautiful scheme and drawing then why not share it with other people because it really helps to share most of the information already in the picture i would really like that quote from an editorial paul nurse wrote in nature a couple of years ago where he says that biology must generate ideas as well as data and for me this is 
exactly with this type of schemes. The the drawing itself is not the idea, but the also looking into all the hypotheses of why this could be happening and how, and then visualizing it like this, it's a way to create these ideas, these theories, and also to communicate them through the drawing. So I, I like this a lot. I can only encourage people to do this kind of things. And also if you're a little bit creative, then it helps you to get that out in, in your work as well, which is always enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to comment too on that quote, because that's something that I've tried to do when I do oral presentation is invite the audience to say, this data is made, it's intended to tell more stories than what I alone am capable of telling. And so I think that's something huge at the metabolomics community too. Not only in that we have to come together for the data acquisition and analysis part, but we also have these huge data sets that we can all now interpret as a global community. I came up with these five hypotheses from the data. Maybe somebody else could look at it and see something different. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And uh, my last question about the paper is what took the most time to get into building the, the like c- recruiting the, the patients, collecting the samples, preparing them, measuring, analyzing? Like, uh, what took the most time and the most resources? Well, I'm very grateful that I did not need to do the clinical part. We inherited these plasma samples, so thank goodness. Thank you, Bruno Lab. <laughs> but the longest part was the QTOP, figuring out how to use it without. Well, yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. Thank you, Dan. But you played it. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> you managed. Yeah. <laughs> so the last question is, of course, what is your favorite metabolite and why? Lipids allowed, of course. Yeah. So I was thinking, I know in my application, I put vitamin D and vitamin D is really awesome. But then I was also thinking about cytosine. Like cytosine has just kind of come up in a lot of uh-huh. contact for me lately. And I think nucleotides are just kind of all the rage mm-hmm. in general. Cause it plays so many functions besides yeah. DNA basin. Cytosine is just kind of neat and being sort of like mm-hmm. this key stone of of nucleotide and pyrimidine salvage and hopefully we can keep digging into how that's related to different diseases um but vitamin d is also cool because we make it like it's a it's a vitamin that we can make from the sun like that's kind of fun and actually we can eat it but you really actually need to get out in the sun to make it which is kind of cool and also plays all these different functions and as uh, like a vitamin D receptor. I don't know. I don't really have a whole lot of specifics for why I particularly love those metabolites, mostly in this, that. Mm-hmm. Great. So I would like to thank you very much for being my guest today. And thank you for discussing your work with me. It was lovely. Yeah, I'm really grateful. This was such a wonderful talk. Thank you for joining us in this discussion. I hope that this episode gave you new insights and ideas on how to plan, conduct, and communicate your own metabolomics projects, and that you're also excited for the future clinical applications of metabolomics. If you'd like to continue this journey with us, make sure to register for the Metabolomist email list on the podcast webpage, themetabolomist.com, where you can also listen to our previous episodes. If you want to learn more about how data interpretation is done, may I recommend my book, The Story Principle. You can find it on the Biocrates webshop. Lastly, for regular news on metabolomics and data interpretation, you can connect with me, Alice Limonciel, 
on LinkedIn, where I post on metabolites, data interpretation, bioinformatics tools, and more.